Hi, and welcome to The Student Sums It Up. My name is Sam, and every week I sit down with our writers to bring you updates on Amherst's latest news stories. Today, February 23rd, we'll talk about the way that COVID restrictions impacted winter athletes, a change in Amherst's policy of allocating benefits to employees, and a new faculty member in the Asian Languages and Civilizations Department. Stay tuned. First, I'm sitting down with managing news editor Tana Delalio to talk about the way that COVID restrictions impacted winter athletes. Hi, Tana. Hi. So could you give us a quick overview of what this situation looked like for student athletes over the winter term? The continuously increasing COVID-19 cases on campus have driven a host of seemingly ever-changing policies regarding winter athletics. And as a result, many winter athletes expressed feeling heightened uncertainty about competition as COVID cases on their teams threatened their physical and mental health. Yeah. And who were some of the athletes or teams that you were able to talk to specifically and what were their experiences? So I spoke to different teams who were on campus for J-Term. So winter athletes, including the track and field team, the swim team, and the squash team. One of the biggest themes I noticed was that each team had a different set of criteria for the number of cases on their team that were allotted in order for them to be able to continue competing against other schools. So I noticed that a lot of athletes felt really stressed about testing positive, not only for their personal health, but for the health of their teammates and their ability to compete against other schools. Mm-hmm. And I know that some of the teams, I don't know a lot about what was going on with sports, but I do know that the swim team had some sort of like finals competition that recently happened. Yeah. What were some of like the big competitions that athletes were worried about and how did COVID affect those? So Sabrina Combs, a sophomore on the swim team, described feeling a lot of anxiety leading up to the team's final meet, which was NESCACs, because they knew that if someone tested positive within a week and a half of that weekend, they weren't going to be able to compete in the event that they'd been working towards the entire year. Mm -hmm. Um, She also described how it affected how precautious she was about COVID with her roommate and her friends because she felt that it was one thing to get sick herself that because it would be a bummer, but to also get her teammates sick and prevent them from having that chance too, that would be really awful. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm wondering is whether these restrictions were imposed by like the NESCAC or whether Amherst made up its own rules during this time? So I'm actually waiting on clarification from Maria Rello about that, but the athletics department did issue a set of return to play guidelines, which featured incremental levels of permitted athletic activity for five days following an athlete's negative test result Mm -hmm. after they did test positive. So even if an athlete was out of 
quarantine, they might still not have been able to compete because they had to follow these return to play guidelines. Mm. And why does the college have different rules for the acceptable level of positive cases for each team? Again, I would have to confirm this with Mirabello, and I did ask her about it, but my own personal feeling is that each team practices their sport in different ways. I'm a member of the squash team, and on my team, if you test positive for COVID, you have to follow an incremental set of guidelines for returning to play, which include spending 15 minutes on an exercise bike and wearing a mask while on court the next few days. But for swim, if you test positive, I learned after speaking to Sabrina Combs that you have to swim by yourself and practice at a different time than other athletes. So just to kind of summarize the extreme uncertainty of these types of situations, it's basically if one person gets COVID and they don't know that they're positive and they go to practice, that could prevent the entire team from competing in whatever event they have coming up. Definitely. The men's squash team had nationals this weekend, Mm -hmm. which is the biggest competition of the year. Mm -hmm. And one student had tested positive for COVID or one member of the team tested positive for COVID And then another one did, who was in contact with the entire team, and they all tested negative prior to their trip, but they were all really scared that if one more person tested positive, no one on the team would be able Mm -hmm. to go. And it's seemingly like an arbitrary line, like between two or three people. It is, yes. It's it's just so much uncertainty and so much. The biggest theme I noticed from all the athletes was... This idea that, you know, the policies could constantly change and that the amount of cases on their team could constantly change and whether or not they would have competition could change. So as an athlete, when you're working towards this goal of having peak performance, it's difficult to know what that looks like in the future. All right. Well, thank you, Tana. Thank you. Next up, I'm sitting down with managing news editor Kaylin McQuilkin to talk about her article on the casual employees situation at Amherst. Hi, Kaylin. Hello. So this is an article following a theme that you took up last semester, which is that there are certain employees among Amherst College's staff who are quote, like casual employees, they receive different benefits and just like different working conditions than do full-time official employees. And you told me that in November, there was a policy change that was put in place to convert some of these casual employees into full-time employees. Is that what happened? Yeah. So yeah, on November 17th, President Martin sent out an email to staff and faculty that announced that the college would be converting 23 casual dining services employees to benefited employees. Okay. And so, yeah, the distinction is that a lot of those casual employees were working the hours of a full-time job, which is about Mm -hmm. 40 hours a week, but they didn't receive any of the benefits or higher pay that comes with having a benefited job. Mm -hmm. So the announcement was that those employees would be converted 
to basically working the same hours per week and doing similar tasks, but actually getting the benefits that should come with a full-time job. Yeah. And just to give some background for people who weren't familiar with the first story you did about this, why is it exactly that there's even a distinction between benefited employees and casual employees if they're working the same number of hours? Well, so the reason that casual employees exist is because the position is supposed to be for people who work fewer than 20 hours a week or just come to work at the college for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of designed for, for example, a high school student from Amherst who wants to pick up a few shifts during Mm -hmm. the week. They don't necessarily need holiday time and health insurance from the college. But as the reporting that I did last semester revealed, while some casual employees were fitting that profile and only working like 10 hours a week or something, there were a significant number who actually had been working at the college for several years and worked up to 40 hours a week, which Mm -hmm. meant that they kind of fell between the cracks in Mm -hmm. working and having the responsibilities of a full-time job, but not having the pay and health insurance, dental insurance, and all the benefits that come with the benefited positions. So then I I imagine that this policy change is certainly like very good in theory, but how did it turn out in practice now that it's been a few months since it was implemented? Yeah, I think the answer is complicated overall. All the employees that I spoke to were very happy about the change. I talked to three employees who were converted from casual employees to benefited employees Mm -hmm. with this shift, and they were all very happy about the benefits that came with that and felt as if their work was being appreciated more, as one employee said. And also other employees who had been benefited before said that they felt like this was overall a really like welcome and beneficial change in the workplace. But I think as any decision like this goes, there's always complexities. And I think one thing that a lot of employees did bring up to me was that they created this new policy that anyone who is still a casual employee can't be working more than 20 hours a week, Mm. which is good because you would think that someone who's working more than 20 hours a week should be getting those benefits. However, there were a few employees who did not get offered the benefited positions that were created in this Mm -hmm. policy change. And then because they remained casual employees, they actually got their hours cut to below 20 Mm. hours a week. And so they ended up not really being in the like good side of either situation Mm -hmm. and like just having to get their hours cut without getting the benefits that went with it. So I think those are the two main takeaways that I got. Yeah. So those people who got pushed very firmly back into the casual employee rule book definition, why were they not offered the benefited position while others were? So these employees were people who were not working a full 40 hour week. Mm -hmm. They weren't, you know, taking on the full time hours. Um, But maybe they were working like 25 hours a week or 30 hours a week. And so I think what employees said was that they understood why the college prioritized giving uh, benefited positions to employees who worked 40 hours a week or more. But there were like a few, not many, but a few employees who were working 25 to 30 hours and then suddenly found that they got five to 10 hours of work cut from their Mm -hmm. weekly schedule. And I also know that there were some people who didn't want to accept the benefited position because it does mean that you have a stricter relationship with the college. You can't take long periods of time off when you want to. And that is something that some casual employees do appreciate about being a casual employee Mm -hmm. and just not feeling like you have as much responsibility, although many of the job tasks are similar. Uh, So that's another thing that I heard from people is that they sort of felt like either they needed to accept the benefited position or try to find work somewhere else because their hours would be cut down if they did not accept the benefited position. 
But of course, most people just did want to accept a benefited position, which was great, but not everyone. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I could try to like sum up this change, it's like Amherst has become more strict about the way they distinguish certain types of workers and the different types of employment have become more set in stone in their definitions. But while this is a good thing for some of the people who were excluded from benefited positions before, it's also made the type of work that you do as an employee a lot less flexible. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that part of the issue with casual employment before this change was that it felt like a large number of employees sort of fell between the cracks mm -hmm. where they were working full-time jobs without health insurance. And we actually calculated that overall, the dining hall had 1,100 hours of like employee labor in one week. And uh -huh. then of those total hours, about 50% were filled by benefited employees and then 50% were filled by casual employees. So it just really went to show how casual employees were taking on a lot of that labor without being entitled yeah. to the same benefits. Um, so that was like really significant. And I think now many of the casuals who were doing that are in better situations is what I heard from people because they do have the benefits. But yeah. there are a few people who now have fallen between the cracks in the opposite sense mm -hmm. that they enjoyed or like maybe not enjoyed but working 25 hours a week was right for their schedule but a benefited position was not yeah. um so yeah so we can say something that we don't say often which is that this was a good change good policy change overall yeah i th i definitely think overall people are very happy with the administration and i just think that it does go to show that when any policy change like this is introduced just like how it would be in an Amherst classroom or any other workplace setting that is very complicated with its dynamics, it's not going to uniformly affect everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I think employees emphasize that it's important to bring that to light and bring to light that they're, because of that, there still is a long way to go. But yes, that overall, this is a good change from the administration. And one final question, was there any takeaway that you got from the writing process or any challenges you faced while collecting sources that you want to share? Yeah, I think the the way that I felt with my past article and same with this one is that there's you never feel like you're able to gather all of the relevant information because there's just so much of it. Like mm -hmm. last semester, one of the employees told me that this topic could literally be someone's thesis topic because there's just so much to it and so much like weird history and dynamics to it. And a lot of that stuff isn't available to students. So I think trying to figure out that information by making connections with different employees was like in a way the best and most like fun part of the writing process yeah. but also difficult because I don't feel that this article represents every single employee at Amherst College which is something I try to make clear in the writing but I hope that it at least gives a window into like some new perspectives. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, I'm sitting down with staff news writer Karina Maciel to talk about the profile she wrote on a new professor in the Asian Languages and Civilizations Department. Hi, Karina. Hi. So this week you interviewed Professor Gomes, who teaches primarily about South and Southeast Asian history. And this is an article that's part of our Fresh Faculty series. I mean, yeah, Professor Gomes is really nice and I really it was really cool to talk with her. Um, this past semester was her first semester at Amherst, and then previously she was teaching at a university in the UK. And then 
I think her focus is on specifically like pre-modern South Asian history. And she told me a little bit about the courses that she taught Mm -hmm. last semester and the courses that she's teaching this semester. So last semester, she taught a course called Ramayanas in History, Ramayanas as History, which is about the Ramayana, which I guess is this really old text from South and Southeast Asia. So she had a class that focused on that. And then she also taught a seminar called the Indian Ocean World, which um, kind of focused on, I think, pre-modern South Asian history, like the history of like the Indian Ocean Basin. So like Malaysia, Indonesia, India, um, those areas. And yeah, I mean, I've never taken one of her classes, but I think I have a friend who's taking a class with her this semester, and it sounds really interesting. And what is her own educational background? Where did she go to school? What did she get degrees in? That sort of thing. So she got a bachelor's degree in history from St. Stephen's College at the University of Delhi, and then her master's degree, and then a master's of philosophy, and a PhD from Jawaharlal Nehru University. When you hear about any new professor, at least what I want to first know is what are they researching? Like what really excites them about their area of study? So uh, what is Professor Gomes researching right now? Okay, yeah, this is cool. We talked about this a little bit. She's building on her dissertation or the work she did to get her PhD. And she's writing a book and it's kind of looking at the ways, she said, the ways in which gender, kinship, And land intersect with techniques of domination and power in pre-modern South Asia, which is um, a lot. But, like, it does sound really interesting. Yeah, so I think her focus is on, like, pre-modern South Asia, specifically India. And she said that what she's doing is she's looking at, like, old inscriptional texts written on, like, not, like, on paper, but written on, like, plates of copper and, like, stone written in like pre-modern languages like Sanskrit and like old Javanese. So that's pretty sick. Yeah. That's so cool that she doesn't just have to read books all day. Like she can hold these things and like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And what does she like or dislike about teaching at Amherst so far? Um, And how does she view her impact as a professor? I asked her like what she hopes her students take away from her classes. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that she said was that she really wants students to kind of see the importance of pre-modern history. Um, She said that like like a lot of the words she used was like contemporary exclusionary political claims, like nationalism. Um, Mm -hmm. She said that those are often based on misunderstandings of like history, like the pre-modern history. And she said she would like students to understand the ways in which the past informs the present and continues to be part of who we are today. Awesome. And specifically about Amherst, is there anything that she noted about teaching Amherst students or teaching at Amherst that's different from the places she taught prior to coming here? Um, I think she said she really likes the liberal arts curriculum, Mm -hmm. um, like to engage with students in the open curriculum in ways that she hasn't been able to before. And then also like the diversity of the student body, I think she said was really, really unique about Amherst. Also, she said that she really liked the newspaper when um, at the end I asked her if she had anything else she wanted to contribute. And she said that she really enjoyed reading the newspaper and that she was happy to speak with us. (laughs) Yay, awesome. Oh, have you mentioned what she's teaching this semester yet? So this semester, 
She's teaching a course called South Asia in the World, which again kind of introduces students to the history of pre-modern South Asia and looking at how like South Asia kind of has always been an important part of like global pre-modern history um, and like placing South Asia at the center of the studies rather than like I guess more European mm -hmm. countries at the center of the frame of reference which is important and then Another course that she's teaching, and this one is really interesting, it's called Sex, Gender, and the Body in South Asian History, which again is looking at pre-modern South Asian history till now, but through like lenses of ca categories like sex, gender, and historicizing those categories. And I think I have a friend who's in that class who says it's really interesting. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you, Karina. Mm -hmm. Welcome. <laughs> Special thanks to the team at The Student, including Ethan Samuels, Lynn Lee, Tana Delalio, and Kaylin McQuilkin. Thank you also to our audio editor, Nicole Richards. Once again, I'm Sam, and I'll see you next week on The Student Sums It Up. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify so you never miss out on Amherst's latest news.